back to the Mark Willard Show on KNBR 104.5 and 680, the sports leader. Scott Reese in for Mark Willard here on a Wednesday night. We got the NBA playoffs coming soon. We got the NHL playoffs coming soon. We got Major League Baseball, which can't get out of its own way, but there will be a season, and uh, ostensibly, sometime soon, they will have to report for Spring Training 2.0. And then you have college football, which is due to kick off about two and a half months from now, a little more than that, around the 1st of September. And there are so many questions uh, that still need answering. So we will do our best to uh, delve into some of those questions with John Wilner from the Bay Area News Group. At Wilner Hotline on Twitter. John, thanks for checking in. Appreciate it. Uh, you have been uh, perhaps my uh, most fervent uh, source of information uh, following you over the course of the last two months, trying to figure out exactly where we're going with this college football season. Uh, where are we at this point? Let's talk specifically of the Pac 12 and obviously with Stanford and Cal. Where are we as we try to figure out if and in what fashion we will have a college football season this fall? Well, I, I appreciate that, Scott. I would say that uh, college football in general and the Pac-12 specifically, uh, including Stanford and Cal, uh, in as good a place as anybody could have hoped if you were, you know, on April 1st, when we were looking out over what the next six to nine months might be like for the sporting world, uh, things have broken the way college football needed them to break in terms of, uh, you know, the Basically, the data points, uh, everything from, you know, the, the demographics that are affected to uh, the, the testing, uh, increase in testing, which is going to be crucial to, you know, the, the low outdoor transmission. I mean, all those kind of things have given uh, college football power brokers a reason to be optimistic. And before we delve into some of those specifics, uh, maybe you can you know give us an idea, a sense of why the college football landscape, in terms of returning from this coronavirus, is so much different than say the NFL or the NBA or Major League Baseball. Well, yeah, sure. I mean, part of it is like just basic economics, right? I mean, uh, th- those are professional leagues, and it's all about making money for the from ownership and players. Uh, you know, college athletes, as uh, sometimes as close to professionals as we think they might be, there is still a college element, an amateur element. And the biggest question hovering over college football has been, would the schools trot 85 players out there to play on a Saturday if the campus itself wasn't safe for 10 or 20,000 kids, right? That that's not something that any of the presidents or chancellors were willing to do, you know, because they are students, uh, not professionals. They were, they were not going to play college football if campus itself wasn't going to open up. You weren't going to have a case where you got 85 kids practicing and playing and nothing else happening. And what's happened is that the schools have come up with some very creative ways to – plan on opening up for, for uh, fall instruction uh, starting in August. And that was the first step for college football. They had to be, the campus had to be safe, right? And 
it's not just like an NFL team where you got the facility, you keep the facility safe, and those guys all they do is go home, you know, and go back to the facility, and and so they're in in pretty good shape. College students are on campus, in classrooms, in dorms, dining halls, all that stuff. They had to make all that safe, and it looks like they figured out ways to do it. Some of them are very creative. Stanford's got a real creative, you know, setup coming. I'm, I'm sure you know. With you know, they're going to split up the the four quarter academic quarters, so to basically have half the students on campus each quarter. Which, of course, begs the question, you know, how do you reconcile the student-athletes who would need to be on campus during very specific quarters, obviously, to uh, to play their respective sports? And I'm sure they'll work all that out. But there, there are still details uh, from both Stanford and Cal that uh, we are still awaiting because they've been trying to figure this thing out on the fly. And to their credit, they're taking as much time as possible to get as much information as possible. Yeah, and they've got to work with the You know, uh, Stanford's got to work with Santa Clara. Santa Clara County health officials and Cal's got to work with the city of Berkeley health officials, just like USC and UCLA are working with LA County. Right. So, uh, but so far there is no indication that any of the 12 schools are not going to be able to have uh start up some kind of practice. Now, uh, when they report for these uh, voluntary workouts, some some Pac-12 schools are reporting on Monday. Uh, teams are reporting Monday. Others are not. I wouldn't expect Stanford and Cal to report till you know late June, early July. That's okay. They just need to have everybody you know basically in place for training camp in, in late July, and and they should be okay in terms of you know having an equitable preparation time uh, for the season. But it is it is definitely, you know, you got to work with your your county and uh, some county, Arizona and Arizona State are, you would think, in a little bit of a precarious situation because of the infection rate spike there. But at the same time, the, the campuses and the athletic facilities are really safe because they're having a small groups on into the weight room at a time. Everything is cleaned. Temperature check before you walk in the building. I mean, that's much safer than your local gym or your local movie theater. Uh, so, in some regards, the the athletes are going to have, you know, uh, uh, have less risk in their lives. Well, yeah, and you could make the argument to that end that the decision to bring students back sooner rather than later could have health benefits, right? Because you could make the argument that, you know, we can keep an eye on them, we can test them, we can quarantine them. Who knows what 18, 19, 20-year-olds are, are, are doing in their own hometown with their friends and going out and, I mean, you know, we've seen what's going on across the country, and I'm sure that's not lost on the decision makers. No, it's not. And the Pac-12's got a a uh, advisory committee, uh, 12 people, and these are big-time health officials. Right? It's either uh, public health officers, it's infectious disease specialists, uh, and they have been advising the conference since uh, you know late March, early April on the safest procedures and protocols, and the, the presidents and chancellors have been involved, athletic directors, county health officials, and there's been a lot of coordination uh, to get them to this point. And, you know, there's going to be positive tests. We've already seen positive tests. Alabama had five players test positive. I think Texas, three or four. That's going to happen. The the key to the whole thing is going to be if there's enough testing so that they can, you know, minimize outbreaks, you know, during the season. Talking with John Wilner, who is uh – 
a uh, college football expert who uh, had been tracking the uh, coronavirus and its effect on uh, plans for the 2020 season uh, at Wilner Hotline on Twitter. John, you know, you mentioned testing, and this is obviously everything, right? When it gets to, and not just for sports, when it comes to getting, you know, kids back on campus, just students back on campus, it's testing, it's tracing, it's, it's you know, isolating uh, those who do test positive. In talking to folks at the 12 schools around the conference, what have you learned in terms of testing plans and procedures? Is there anything that strikes you as particularly inventive, anything that you know maybe could be used as a blueprint that other schools will follow? Well, you know, all of the uh, optimistic projections for the season to start that first weekend in September and for training camp to start in late July – are based on a presumption that the testing situation will be better six or eight weeks from now than it is today, that there will, the campuses will have more tests, that the, uh, they will be accurate tests, that the response time will be quick. And so they can get these guys tested three times a week, right? I mean, from the time you're exposed to the virus to the time that you become contagious is about 72 hours. So if you can test these guys, you know, three or four times a week, you basically cover all of the windows of potential uh, contagion. And so then you've got a factor. Well, there's, you know, 500, 1,000 student athletes at each of these schools. And there's, you know, not just 85 players on a football team, but there's assistant coaches and support personnel. So football loans 150 tests in a single uh, administration. So we're talking about the need for thousands, tens of thousands of tests for a single school to get through uh, the school year. They got to have all that. And and they believe that they will uh, based on what they've been told from state and county health officials. You know, I take this back six or eight weeks, and the speculation was, you know, or the, the questions were, uh, what happens if, you know, certain conferences say we're raring to go, the SEC, the Big 12 say we're going to play, and then maybe the Pac-12 and the Big 10 say, oh, I don't know about that, we're not ready. And then it became, all right, well, if every conference is going to play, what happens if there is one school within the conference that either has, you know, a spike in that area, there's health concerns, or, or for whatever reason is an outlier? It seems to me, and maybe you can confirm this, that the Pac-12 has really been in lockstep and that Larry Scott has uh, done a nice job in sort of keeping everybody on the same page so that they really do feel like they are all in this together, even though there may be some schools who are reporting earlier than others. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, The Pac-12 has managed everything very well. Uh, everybody's aligned, and that means the presidents and chancellors, right? That's They're the key here. And uh, so far, everybody is committed to playing. Uh, there's an understanding that it's not going to be completely equitable right now. You know, uh, Colorado and Utah, they're reporting on, on Monday the 15th. Stanford, Cal, other schools probably, you know, another couple of weeks. But these are voluntary workouts. Everybody needs to be reporting at the same time for training camp in late July and and then it'll be it'll be fine. Uh Pac-12 has done very well. There've been nobody's put their foot in their mouth in a public statement. Uh all of the everybody has been aligned. Uh they have moved I th- I would say they have not moved cautiously nor have they moved recklessly on this. Uh it's been, you know, uh very impressive uh for them in terms of their messaging and their decision making and we'll see where it gets i mean nobody knows uh, that's the thing who 
you have no idea what's going to happen in eight weeks. But at this point, things look pretty good, and they are crossing their fingers because if there's no football, then the, the mm. repercussions are, are you know disastrous for athletics. No doubt, no doubt. And we've already seen some of that across the country, even uh, even at this point, uh, John. What happens? You know, the question that has to be asked and will be asked, and maybe you have asked it, and I'm sure they don't know the the answer completely, but they've got to be thinking about it. What happens if, right? You say there are cases now, and you can deal with cases in June. It's not a big deal. It will be a bigger deal when you talk about September and October and November. And is there a number of cases, whether it's five or 10 or 12 within one team, where all of a sudden you have to start asking the question, hey, do we have to forfeit a game this week or the next two? weeks because we've got an outbreak and we need to contain it. So I've got a list of questions that have not been answered by the people who should be answering them. That's got to be number one. And that's on there. (laughs) Okay. It's not number one, but it's on there. Okay. Uh, so, you know, uh, not to get too grim, but, you know, certainly what happens if some, either a player or staff member passes away? What, how would the playoff work if they don't all play 12 games? How are teams going to decide who gets season tickets if you've got reduced capacity? Right. Uh, and what happens if, if you can't field the team in a given week because you got an outbreak among 20 or 30 kids, right? So uh, nobody, nobody knows any of these questions. But certainly there is a potential for uh, a disrupted season. Either one school or uh, many schools has to forfeit a, a game or two. Uh, the season has to, has to stop in late October and then pick back up in January or February. That's certainly on the table. Not starting until October is on the table. And, you know, basically you'd eliminate your non-conference games. They have, they have thought of, of everything. But the bottom line is, Every school is going to do everything it possibly can to play. Because if they don't play, then you know you're going to have mass layoffs in college athletics. You're going to have sports cut left and right. The economic devastation will be uh, across the board. They will do everything they can do to play until they are told they absolutely can't. Scott Reeson for Mark Willard here as we're talking college football with John Wilner as uh, we hope college football will start as scheduled uh, end of August, beginning of September. Uh, John, you had an interesting article. I don't know if it was this week or the end of last week. It's all running together at this point. But you had some suggestions on ways in which teams might have to manage their personnel in terms of sort of quarantining some of the more important position groups between games, which I thought was actually pretty intuitive. Can you give me a you take us through that kind of your, your train of thought there? Well, basically, it's like, uh, you know, how the president and the vice president aren't supposed to be in the same building same room at the same time. I mean, that's kind of out the door these days, but typically that's what has happened, right? And you don't necessarily want to have your first string quarterback and your second string quarterback together all week, because if one of them gets gets sick, chances are the other one's going to be getting sick, right? And then all of a sudden, you don't have a quarterback. Or what happens if you your entire offensive line gets it? So, I would expect that coaches, again, assuming that there is a, a season at some some degree, the coaches are going to get real creative in terms of how they manage their depth charts, how they practice. You could end up seeing the offensive first string offensive line, second string offensive line, not practice together, not be anywhere near each other, because that way you're increasing your your odds of having at least one of those units together. You could see the starting quarterback you know, barely practicing during the week because they want to basically keep that, keep him in a bubble, right? 
your long snapper, obviously not a high profile position, but every coach will tell you if you if your long snapper is not available, you have uh, the, the chances of something going very wrong are are high. You protect your long snapper, protect your place kicker. I, I think it's going to get real creative. Uh, you may see teams practicing. In just like, you know, uh, instead of a three-hour practice with the whole team, you've got it broken into like three groups for one hour each. And those groups then, you know, are in the locker room at separate times. They're in the weight room at separate times. They're in meetings and film room at separate times because you've got to keep, uh, you know, at least one position group uh, healthy uh, in your lineup uh, for Saturday. You know, you're asking hypotheticals. What happens if both your quarterbacks can't play? Or what happens if your entire offensive line can't play at once? And I'm thinking, this doesn't sound hypothetical to me because I lived through it last year and we saw that that was basically Stanford's season. So we already know the (laughs) answer to these questions, right? Yeah, and it's not good. And it's not good. (laughs) So uh, before I let you go, uh, I'm just curious in your discussions with coaches and athletic directors, um, have you gotten a sense of, of concern about student athletes deciding or their parents deciding, you know what, I don't feel comfortable with this. I'm going to sit out the season because you have to figure somewhere someone is going to have that attitude. You would think that that's going to come up. I have not heard of it yet. Uh, all the feedback I've gotten is that the players are, are, are desperate to play. And more than that, they are desperate to get back with their team and back on campus with their coaches and back into their routine. You know, we forget these are 18 to 21 year olds and they are creatures of habit. uh, And they are, have been out of their comfort zone and out of their routine now in a very scary situation for three months. And they want to get back together. And there is deep concern among college athletic officials about you know mental health consequences from this for some of these student athletes uh you know some of these kids are not eating well at home you know if you're from the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum you know maybe you've got problems with with your diet at home maybe you've got uh you know there's there's eight or ten people in your family all living under the same roof and so you've got a high risk situation there for the virus they they the the Coaches and administrators want the kids back, and the kids want to get back. What happens when we get to mid-August and parents uh, get nervous that they'll have to come, you know, cross that bridge at that point? I'm sure it'll come up somewhere, but right now, that's not uh, not really an issue. All right. Uh, we appreciate it. It is an ever-evolving situation, and obviously there are going to be some big things coming down the pike in the next two or three weeks. So, uh, John Wilner, we will uh, keep uh, keep tuned to the Wilner Hotline, and we appreciate your time on KMBR. Thanks a ton, Scott. Stay safe. All right. You too, man. Uh, yeah, I mean, so much creativity at this point with the colleges and how they're handling this thing, and, and not just with sports. I mean, you know, John referenced, you know, Stanford has basically come up with a system where they're going to have half the undergrads on campus at any one time. So you'll have freshmen and juniors one quarter and then sophomores and seniors the next quarter. And I mean, it's just, it is crazy. And one thing that schools, including Stanford, are doing, and I think is terrific, is they're changing the calendar. So Stanford's starting a week earlier in September. And they are ending fall quarter essentially at Thanksgiving so they the kids can go home for Thanksgiving and not have to go back and forth and, and twice the, the plane flights and whatnot for those who are out of state and or out of the country even. Um, and it'll come back in January and they'll take final exams online 
the week after Thanksgiving, and that seemed like a, a real smart thing to do. So this is uh, this is forcing a lot of creativity in, in all walks of life, and obviously colleges and college athletics, uh, no different. All right, coming back, uh, we'll get back to baseball. Mark Sanchez, Giants beat writer, will join us. Uh, we'll talk about today's draft and uh, what's going on in MLB. That is next here on KNBR, the sports leader.